Would you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, it is so humbling, so humbling to be in the presence of one who is so holy, so special, so unique, so almighty, and yet is so tremendously faithful. Thank you, Father. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts for being so faithful to us, so faithful to this church. Through it all, through the best of times and the toughest of times, thank you, Father, and we love you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14 this morning. Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 25, where we're going to find not one, but the two parables we'll be looking at this morning the parable of the tower builder and the king going to war. On their face, These parables are very simple. They have been classified by parable classifiers, I guess, as one-point interrogatory parables. One point, because they make one point, go figure, and interrogatory because they ask a rhetorical question of the reader or the hearer, a question that asks something like, who among you wouldn't do this? Begging the answer creating the answer in the here, well, well, no one wouldn't do that. We would all do this, and we'd even do it all the more. So on their face, these parables are very simple. But while their message is indeed simple and straightforward, it's nevertheless a message that prevents a very serious challenge to all of us, as parables always do. The immediate context of these parables in Luke is earlier in the same chapter 14 where Jesus tells the parable of the great banquet, which, as you may recall, emphasizes the urgent invitation to everyone to accept God's invitation and to be part of the kingdom of God, God's great love and care and faithfulness to prepare eternal life, to make it possible, and His great heart, His great desire that everyone might come. And such a message, such an emphasis is understandably popular among the people who heard it that day. It's a popular message. Our great, big, powerful, holy, almighty God, nevertheless, or even because, standing with open arms, inviting all to come. And so Luke points out, right after the parable of the great banquet, that large crowds were with Jesus. Well, no wonder. And then Jesus speaks again. And what he says must have been far less popular to the crowds. Indeed, the passage we're about to read is full of sayings that make it on biblical scholarships' lists of the difficult words of Jesus. Your Bibles are open to Luke chapter 14, and I'll begin reading at verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his whole life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoa! See why that makes it on a list of difficult words of Jesus. Now, we're not spent a lot of time on this verse this morning, but it's one that's often misunderstood, so let me give you this to to consider at least. Jesus is using what's called Middle Eastern hyperbole there. Hate isn't literally hate. 
he's contrasting our love of God and perhaps our next greatest love, our love of family. And he's saying, by comparison, our love of God is so infinitely more than even our great love for our family. But our love of God is so infinitely more that by comparison, that great love of our family looks like hate. Verse 27, And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And here's the parable of the tower builder. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone, will, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. And those in Jesus' audience that day perhaps started to look at each other and maybe start to grin. Here's one of those humor moments I've been telling you about in a parable. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? And then everybody broke out in laughter because you see Herod Antipas had done just that. Recently it was in the air. Jesus knows his politics and he uses a picture in his story. Herod had marched off to war with a much smaller force against a king coming to try to punish Herod for divorcing that king's daughter, Herod's wife, and, and, and sending her from the country. Everybody laughed and went, yeah, Antipas, oh my goodness. If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, Any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Then a very, one of Jesus' favorite sayings, both in the Gospels and in the book of Revelation, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. These are the very words of God. Amen? Amen. Have you, ever, have you ever said to yourself, have you ever said to yourself, what in the world have I gotten myself into? Like every day, right? Something unexpected comes up, making it more difficult than you thought it was going to be going in, Right? There you are, now you're caught in the middle of it now, and whatever it is, and that thought crosses your mind, what in the world have I gotten myself into? I have that experience almost every Sunday morning, looking out at all of you, looking back at me. (laughs) Not even kidding, there's a time in almost every sermon where it will actually cross my mind while I'm speaking. What in the world have I gotten myself into? But when it comes to following Jesus, when it comes to being his disciple, God would rather spare us the frustration of that question. What in the world have I gotten myself into? Because when we get frustrated, God knows. When we get frustrated, especially over time as it deepens, we tend to withdraw, lose hope, and quit. 
I still remember the very first gas grill from Sears that I tried to put together in my garage. Especially the part where they ask you to put a bolt this long through three thick levels of iron and the holes don't match up and the, the, the metal won't move. And I was so frustrated, I wanted to pick up the whole grill and just chuck it in the... And it's frustrating. And, and I just wanted to quit. And so that can happen, that question, what in the world have I gotten myself into with something as trivial as a gas grill or as building a watchtower? But then there are bigger things too, aren't there? I have no doubt that the alarming divorce rate inside and outside of the church is because people get to a place in their marriage where eventually they cry in despair, what in the world have I gotten myself into? And so they lose hope. And they quit. And so it can be something as serious as marriage or as a king going to war. So when it comes to following Jesus, being his disciple, the most serious question any of us could possibly have, God wants us to go into it with our eyes wide open so we don't become frustrated and quit. In a way, given the illustration of marriage God uses to describe his relationship to his people, these parables urge intensive premarital counseling prior to saying, I do. Two parties, based on God's grace, yes, deeply in love, blown away by the grace underlying and through and in their love, but nevertheless needing the valuable preparation of premarital counseling. And so Jesus tells us these parables about the importance, the obvious necessity of counting the cost before we try and take up that cross daily and follow Him. The parables warn us against a, a premature or an unaware acceptance of discipleship because, my friends, as the phrase take up our cross daily, which Jesus says elsewhere, but also echoes right here in this parable this morning. Being a disciple of Jesus is hard work. It costs us. Now you heard last week from Dan Sarian that it's well worth what it costs. It's even far more valuable to us than what it costs infinitely more, but it nevertheless costs us. I was looking in the Bible for a passage to illustrate counting the cost. While there are many examples, I couldn't pick one. I was having a hard time. Which one? Right in the middle of that, my dad called as he does from time to time to say hi and asked me, hey, what are you doing? What are you working on? And I told him, I'm trying to find something in the Bible to illustrate the counting the cost message of these two parables. And he says to me, how about Isaiah 6? I said, Isaiah 6? Not my list to look at, right? I said, no, Dad, it's discipleship. That's like a Jesus New Testament thing. 
You know, I, I still, even all the amazing blessing that my experience and study and time in Israel and the Old Testament has been to me, old habits die hard, and I still don't remember to go and look even first and foremost in some way of what the Old Testament has to say because it is indeed the foundation of everything in the new. And I know this, but old habits die hard. And so I went to Isaiah 6 to check it out, and there it was. Like, hooray! It's like, way to go, Dad. And um, it's an incredible example of counting the cost and the cost of discipleship. Incredible. And I never saw it before. You ever had that experience even in a well-known story like this one where you read in the Bible your whole life and then you read it again and it's like, oh! It speaks to you in a new way. Maybe you'll have that experience this morning. I don't know. You want to see? All right, let's look at Isaiah chapter 6. I'm just going to read it, okay? The setting for Isaiah 6 is Isaiah's commission to be a prophet, his call to discipleship, really, And he's caught up into the heavenlies, caught up to heaven into that divine council room of God where there sits God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and all the surrounding angels in attendance where where God rules in picture. And there's Isaiah, and he writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. That would be a good science project for you guys sometime. Build a seraph. We'll see what that looks like. And they were calling to one another, what the choir just called. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook And the temple was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, holy smoke! That's a paraphrase. (laughs) That's what he said. He said, woe to me! I cried. I'm ruined! For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah realizes he cannot be with God on his own merit. He doesn't deserve to even be in God's presence. And he's ruined. There's nothing he can do. Then, one of those seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Oh my goodness, brothers and sisters, that's grace! In Isaiah 6. And after that, it was all done for Isaiah, right? All his guilt had been taken away, and his sin is atoned for. He's good to go. And that's it, right? Wrong. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, immediately on the heels of grace, Whom shall I send? 
And who will go for us? That had to be a lonely moment for Isaiah. Here am I. Send me. There's the response to grace. He said, God said, go and tell this people. Here's Isaiah's message. Be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. That's the parable of the sower, which we do in a couple weeks. We may come back to Isaiah 6. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. It's judgment. And in this next verse, my friends, hear Isaiah count the cost of bringing that message because he says in response to that, and I'll paraphrase, uh... How long do I got to bring that message? Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted, the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains, Isaiah's just told that nine out of ten people aren't going to listen to anything that he says. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leaves stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. That sounds like a long time that Isaiah has to bring this message. And oh, what a tough message for Isaiah to take to his people continuously and for a long time. In fact, for Isaiah, his whole life. Chapter 7 gives Isaiah hope. We find there perhaps the most famous prophecy in all the Bible. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. But the message he had to bring of God's coming judgment was a tough message. And Isaiah stood there that day, counting the cost. And like with Isaiah, for us too, of course, there is grace. The angel, through the symbol of a live coal, refining fire, simply takes away Isaiah's guilt and sin. Just like that. But it's only the beginning for Isaiah and for us. For out of that grace flows hard work. The hard work of bringing what to many is still an unpopular message and being persecuted for it. See, God is not only about increasing the size of His family. We get caught there sometimes, I think. Altar calls that invite a decision for Jesus are often followed by a sense of, oh, Phew! Everything important has been completely accomplished. Let's go find more converts. But no, not everything important. Coals on lips that take away guilt and atone for sin, just like that, may feel like everything is all done. But no, just ask Isaiah. Something big has been accomplished for sure 
make no mistake about it, when we repent and are forgiven and ask Jesus into our lives. But it's only the beginning. God is not only about increasing the size of his family. He's about recruiting more workers, more disciples, a depth of faith, a maturity of faith to share in the work of his love. He wants a big family so that we can work together with each other and with him to get the word out and love all the more because the harvest is plenty and the workers are few. Brad Young puts it this way. For Christianity, the cross has become more a symbol of salvation than a call to radical discipleship. In the teachings of Jesus, in contrast, the image of the cross was a call to radical discipleship. One must hear and obey. The stress was not on salvation, but on obedience. Radical discipleship meant social action in the highest sense of the term. The force of the kingdom is demonstrated by people working together, empowered by God, to bring healing to a hurting world in the midst of a society that often has abandoned God and His ways. Isaiah had to count the cost. And so do we. And the hope Isaiah had was that Emmanuel would come. And the hope we have is that Emmanuel is coming again. And it's in the hope, like Isaiah, that we count the cost before saying, I do, to following Jesus. What exactly is this cost of discipleship? Read the Sermon on the Mount sometime, and you'll find out. Matthew 5, 6, 7. Romans 6, 7, and 8. Six intense chapters on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, including the cost. The cost is living our lives for God and others, not for ourselves. The cost of discipleship is loving God and loving others as ourselves. And that's hard. It's hard to say no to what in our flesh we want to do or think or have or be. It's hard to put ourselves after God and especially others. The pull of our flesh is strong, very strong. Our strong tendency is that we want to take care of ourselves first and foremost and defend against anything that threatens it to do what we want to do. Instead, we're called to even give our lives, if necessary, for God and others. I asked myself that question this past week especially. Have you ever asked yourself that question? Am I willing to die for God and others? Literally. If my life is literally at stake, would I give it for God and others? And you know, the best I could do for me was to answer, boy, I hope so. Because how can we know? Maybe it's one of those things that, how can we truly know that we would follow through and even give our lives rather than work against or renounce Jesus if we're put on the spot, you know, like the Christian martyrs of old and the Christian martyrs of even this literal day, today. I don't know we can know for sure unless we were put in that position, but even if we can't know, 
right now. In the meantime, we can and we must cultivate that willingness to die, should it come to that. Cultivate it through obedience. Obedience even in the little things. I was thinking, isn't that what it means to mature in the faith as Christians? We mature when we get more and more willing to die to self for God and others. More and more willing to pay more and more of self to God and to God through loving others. One big difference between us and Isaiah standing there alone in heaven, forgiven but alone, made clean, saved by grace, and counting the cost but alone. One big difference between Isaiah alone that day and us is that we have community. The people of God to go with us Isaiah looked around and no one else is standing there. Well, look around this room. Look over the past 25 years. Look around the world. Millions and millions of brothers and sisters in Christ in this with us. And of course, since the child Emmanuel in chapter 7 has already been born, and because he was born and lived and died and rose again and ascended to heaven, well, our message is a message of greater hope than Isaiah might have even imagined. Still not always popular, but nevertheless filled with more hope having been realized in the life of Christ. What in the world have we gotten ourselves into? Well, we've gotten ourselves into a love that loves us completely, God's love, unconditionally, through grace. A love so deep that he sent Jesus to die so we could be together with God forever. Forever. And in response to so great a love, we've gotten ourselves into a life of service. A life of saying no to self and yes to God. A life of loving God and loving others. And that's difficult. And God knows it will be. And so he has Jesus remind us. Jesus reminds us that when we make the commitment to follow Jesus, do it with our eyes wide open, counting the cost ahead of time, knowing, boy, it's going to be tough. You want to do something tough? Hang out with and work closely with church people. That's part of counting the cost. He knows it's going to be tough. And knowing that with God, with us, and in this, together with God and with each other, we can, despite anything that comes up, despite Columbine, despite anything that comes up that makes it difficult, we can and we will follow Jesus, taking up our cross daily and following Him. Before we share communion together this morning, I... I want to close with some words I came across from one scholar in particular concerning these two parables. I don't, uh, I try not to um, too often heap on you such a large quote, but he gets it just right, in my opinion. See what you think. Here's what he says These parables differ greatly from the easy believism that marks so much of American Christianity. 
churches urge everyone to believe, to accept Jesus, but make no demands on people's lives. The more adherence, the better, even if the message is curtailed for marketing purposes. Such shallow ideas about conversion create enormous problems for individuals, churches, and societies. We need to do a much better job helping people understand what Christianity really is all about. The concern is not going to heaven, as important as heaven is, but living now in accordance with Jesus' own life. The parables are about more than considering the cost of discipleship. Presupposed and more significant is the fact that discipleship requires intent, choice, determination, and effort. It's not some light-hearted affair. And it does not just happen. The fear we have of focus on human effort must be jettisoned. For no discipleship occurs without human effort or merely because of human effort. Discipleship is not about humans straining on their own. It is the necessary result and consequence of faith in and following after Jesus. Relation to Christ activates and empowers the whole of life. But if humans do not choose to act and actually act, nothing happens. As the ushers come forward and we draw near to a picture of the great banquet that God has prepared for us and invites us all to attend. Would you join me, please, in prayer? Father in heaven, here we are again, Father. Here we are again by your amazing grace. And like Isaiah, we want to respond to your grace by saying, here are we, send us. May you find us eager to join in with you with our eyes wide open to what we must do to put our faith, to put your grace into the action of loving you and loving others in Jesus' name. Amen.